I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the impact on supply chains from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we have with us a very special guest today. We have Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Defense Programs, Deborah Rosenblum. Assistant Secretary Rosenblum is also the Acting Assistant Secretary for Industrial Based Policy, which is the heart of the matter that we're going to be talking about today. Assistant Secretary Rosenblum, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Oh, no, Andrew, thank you. It's absolutely a pleasure. I have tremendous respect for CSIS and really look for opportunities to talk about some of these supply chain issues and know with confidence that those that are listening to you and your readership really want to understand it better and get to the heart of it. So thank you. Sure. I I mean, it seems like supply chain is like on the tip of our tongues constantly these days. Can you tell us about the impact Russia's invasion of Ukraine has had on the global supply chain? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's two key events that have really focused everybody on the supply chain, as you've said, where everybody is talking about supply chain, no matter what kind of business they're in, where in the government that they are working. In the very near term, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia has led to some very real near-term challenges in the supply chain, particularly around all of the munitions and military support that we're providing to Ukraine because we're taking those out of U.S. stockpiles and our stock munitions so that we're able to give it to Ukraine right away. And in order to backfill them as quickly as possible, what we've discovered is that there are distinct areas where things have become obsolete. It's been hard to find certain materials, certain supplies that are needed in order to make those munitions. And as a result of that, we've had to do a lot of problem solving to try and get around that obsolescence. But it's also building against a much bigger backdrop of supply chain problems that really came to light under COVID-19. Sure. Well, what region do you think has taken the biggest hit in all of this? So I think that there are a couple areas. There are particular materials and critical minerals that we traditionally have gotten from Russia and from Central Asia, where we've now seen tremendous disruptions to the markets. We don't talk about publicly any specific pieces just to make sure that no one is trying to use that to directly undermine the United States. But that's been the area as it relates to Ukraine that has been the most difficult. The other area that it's really drawn to light, and it's not just for the United States, but also our NATO allies that are also helping to support Ukraine, that a lot of the problems that we're seeing in our supply chain area are affecting them as well. So it's a combination of the actual materials, as well as the fact that we don't have the kind of transparency into our supply chains that we really need. Assistant Secretary Rosenblum, you mentioned COVID-19 also caused severe supply chain disruptions. In your mind, what are the primary differences between the disruptions caused by Russia-Ukraine conflict versus the pandemic? 
it's an order of magnitude is really how I would discuss it. You know, when we were looking at COVID-19, that was very much on a global scale. And so you had all of the markets shutting down at exactly the same time. We also were catching up with under COVID-19, the reality that our businesses and the government has long preference just in time, logistics and support for having supply chains and indigenous capabilities here in the United States. So on a global scale, you had everything shutting down at once. And then you also had disruptions economically because there was suppressed demand. We were all at home. And while we might have been buying stuff from Amazon, we were not living our, our regular lives and traveling and everything else that goes into that. And then as soon as everyone felt from a public health perspective that it was safe to go back, you automatically then had a really high spike up in demand. So you were really dealing with the way we'd gotten used to doing business of just in time and a supply chain that was abroad with then extreme pressures from COVID compared with in the case of Ukraine, that those are very specific markets with specific supply chains that are being affected in a given region. And so on a scope and scale, even though it's been very difficult with Ukraine, it's a different order of magnitude. So we always talk about this in terms of national security, and you've alluded to this in the remarks you've just given, but how do you see the various national security implications associated with this for the U.S. and its ally countries as a result of such disruptions? Yeah. So how I think about it is the defense industrial base, which is critical, of course, to getting our war fighters what they need when they need it to prosecute the nation's wars and to protect our allies and partners overseas. The reality is, is that the defense industrial base, or we call it the DIB, is part of a much bigger industrial base in the United States and globally. And so a lot of the problems that we're encountering in the defense industrial base, like disruptions, materials being overseas in countries that are often hostile to us from a trade perspective, or might want to play political games with our ability to access markets, that the broader constraints that are there in the broader industrial base also affect our defense industrial base. So while we can make progress to strengthen our industrial base, we are very much beholden to strengthening the country's industrial base. And that's why very much from the beginning, President Biden said when he first came in, we need to make supply chain across our economy, one of our priorities. And has he has since over the past two years, or close to two years, put out a variety of executive orders, asked for departments to put together strategies on how they're going to make healthier the supply chains that are particular to their area where they have jurisdiction and responsibility. So- where do we go from here? What do you predict the future is going to look like as the Russia-Ukraine conflict continues on? So always a good question as to what's going to happen next um, in Ukraine. Sorry to ask you for a crystal ball here, but you no, know. I was going to say you, you, you probably have views just like I do. But for the sake of not wanting to speculate, I do think the one thing that we certainly can agree on is the fact that it's likely to go on for a while. 
And so what that has meant is we have had to make sure that we are really understanding the key critical supplies that we need on the munitions and the other areas like anti-tank, integrated air defenses. So when you look at areas where the U.S. has publicly announced that it's providing support directly to to Ukraine, what we do is we then look at those weapon systems because, you know, as I mentioned, we know they're coming out of the U.S. stockpiles to begin with. We look at where those munitions are being made and any of the other equipment that we may give, and we work in partnership with industry. We've been working very, very closely with Raytheon, with Boeing, with Lockheed Martin to say, okay, we're going to need to replace these munitions that we've taken out. What is current capacity to expand that production and also add additional capacity in the form potentially of additional production lines. And so we will be in that mode for quite a while, because even were the conflict to end tomorrow, the reality is it's going to take several years for us to replace the munitions to the level that we want to get back to. And so this is something that we're going to be in the business of for quite a while. Maybe this is a difficult question to ask, but I still have to ask it. One of your core responsibilities is to ensure a secure supply of materials that are critical to national security. Is there a way that you can say without divulging information that would be against national security, what's been the most difficult component of maintaining this security over the past year? You know, I think some of the pieces here is balancing near-term needs with the longer term efforts that we have underway to strengthen the defense industrial base. And what I mean by the near term needs, and we've talked a little bit about this just a few minutes ago, is we know we clearly have to be working very hard around the clock on replacing the immediate munitions. And so that has taken money. Congress certainly has appropriated supplementals for us. It has taken manpower, working very closely with industry, as I mentioned, a little bit ago. And it's balancing that with the longer term plans that we have to strengthen the defense industrial base. So, you know, as I mentioned a minute ago, when President Biden came in, he asked agencies to put together their strategies and the Department of Defense within the first year did so. And it said, we really need to be focused around five key areas. And so we built out strategic plans to bring some capacity back to the United States, investing in some of the early phases of our supply chain, like mining and minerals processing, to be able to do it here in the United States, not just overseas. And we were well set and ready to go. And in fact, our strategy on how we were going to get after this was rolled out the day that Russia rolled into Ukraine. And so, you know, the great irony there was we would then see that the invasion of Ukraine from an industrial base perspective has put into vivid relief all the work that we need to be doing. But we can't lose sight of that broader strategy. And it will take years to get that capacity here in the United States. And so one of the hardest things I've had to do working with my team is making those decisions on where we're going to put finite resources, not just financial, but also the people working on it and where we're going to engage industry on that. 
Do we have much insight into what our competitors, namely China and Russia, are doing to undermine our defense supply chains and what activities they're engaged in that Americans should be aware of? So we have some. We know where they have been making key investments, some in U.S. companies, many of which are made public in terms of those investments. We also know that there have been disruptions in markets that we rely on for some of the early phases of the supply chain, you know, critical minerals and mineral processing with regards to that. You know, I do know that this is an area that has absolutely increased as a priority for our intelligence community to really be blending that economic information with national security information. And one of the things that I have been very much struck with in working this industrial-based job is the degree to which economic security intersects very directly with national security. And I spend as much time with the NSC as I do with the National Economic Council when we're looking at how it is that we're bringing things that we're doing to strengthen our defense industrial base, how they are also helping our broader industrial base, because in the end of the day, we have to reduce our reliance on overseas. Not to mean, you know, it's only by America. We're absolutely not saying that by any means. But we know better now than we did a few years ago where some of our key vulnerabilities are. And we're really trying to get after those. So, you know, that brings up a really interesting point. Economic security has an awful lot to do with national security. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how that has become so important to our national security discussions in Washington? Absolutely. So, you know, when we look at it, we know from a national security perspective, particularly now with the new national defense strategy that's out from this year, 2022, and, and just recently rolled out, where we've talked about the need for what's called in the document enduring advantages that we need a resilient force, that we need infrastructure that's going to support the warfighter. And that means things like logistics, sustainment, healthy defense industrial base, the ability to rely on the U.S. as well as our closest allies for some of these key supplies that we need. But we know we're not doing that in a vacuum. You know, we have an open trade system. We have a relatively open financial system. We have individual individuals and countries from all over the world investing in our companies. And so what we're having to do is look at some of these investments to say, you know, are they appropriate, not just in promoting free trade and the flow of capital across markets, but is it also appropriate because would it infringe on a capability that we need to keep here in the United States and keep owned in U.S. hands or some of our allied hands? And we also are very aware of if steel companies are having difficulties, which we generally think about from a domestic perspective. Well, we need that steel as well as we are ramping up and modernizing our forces. And with my nuclear chemical biological hat on, 
you know, we're about to and are undertaking a very ambitious upgrade and modernization to our nuclear triad. And we certainly need a lot of steel for that. And our shipbuilding industry is another example of that. So we're finding that in order to have the capabilities that the warfighter needs, it's going to take really that synergy between the domestic side and our economy, along with the national security. And one other piece I would throw out there, which is just fascinating to me, is workforce. You know, many times I'm asked what keeps me up at night, and they always expect me to say a nuclear chemical or biological thing. Those do keep me up. I have to say that. But having an adequate workforce is another one. You know, we as a country have not invested at the level that we need to in your manufacturing workforce. We've kind of prided ourselves in being more in the high end of the market or in the early end with the R&D. And we stop producing things and we need to get back to a country that produces things if we are going to have the kind of military that we believe we need to have with the capabilities that they need to have 10, 15 years from now when we believe that China will be at its full strength. So this is really a landmark thing that the national defense strategy is talking about supply chain challenges. Yes, absolutely. And it's something that is very much front and center. And in some of the work that we're doing, for instance, to support Ukraine, the Secretary of Defense once a quarter hosts a meeting that's called the Ukrainian Contact Defense Group. And it's meant to ensure that all of the allies stay together and are cohesive, are looking at the same picture. And increasingly in that fora, more and more of our time we're spending on industrial base issues. Because as I mentioned a, a few minutes ago, our allies are not immune to these at all. And there's a lot of sharing that we are able to do with our closest allies on this is what we're seeing. These are the remedial steps we're taking. This is how we're engaging industry. Share your lessons with us as well. And so what we're finding is issues that were previously potentially thought of as, well, that's a domestic issue or that's a workforce issue or that's just about labor are now front and center with meeting our goals for national security. Lastly, if you could tell the American people one thing about supply chains at this moment, what would it be? It would be just in time is no longer our friend. And I'm as guilty as everyone else. You know, I love to have, you know, whatever I need to order from Amazon exactly when I need it. But what's happened is, is we have traded away capacity here in this country in order to be able to get it through speed. And we have disinvested in many industries that we really need to bring back to the United States or to some of our closest allies, so that even if it takes longer, even if those investments are not paying off immediately, they will over the longer term. And so we do need to sacrifice something. And it's a trade I would make any day in order to strengthen our national security by having these capacities here in the United States. Assistant Secretary Deborah Rosenblum, thank you very much for your time today and for this really terrific insight. Great. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, and good luck this week. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more.
You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 